0: Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, F.P.'s economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points, use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, F.P.'s deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, F.P.'s economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So today we're going to be talking about the economics of the war in the Middle East a lot to talk about there but first i wanted to talk about the live show that we have coming up in berlin on october 27th the tickets for that are already on sale and in fact many of them have already been sold apparently there are a couple dozen tickets left if you're interested go to the link in our show notes I think you can still buy some but do it quick these tend to go fast so don't wait too long so as i mentioned we will be discussing the war in the Middle East and the economic issues related
1: to that. India reports say that the death toll from Saturday's attacks by Hamas have now passed the 900 mark. Now that comes after about a hundred more bodies were found in a small farming community.
2: continuing near to God's follow course. events
1: in the Middle East where Israel's retaliation by air for the deadly attack by Hamas is flattening more territory and taking more lives. Officials inside America's Gaza. Top diplomat Anthony Blinken is due to arrive in Israel in the next few hours from the US, as the US and other nations try to prevent a wider conflict erupting in the Middle East. There's also growing diplomatic.
0: We thought we would forego the data point here. Obviously, there's plenty of data points to cite, but they're all pretty grim, whether the over a thousand people that died in Israel in the attacks that Hamas launched last Saturday or The equal number of people that have died in Gaza so far and the bombardments that Israel has launched after that attack last Saturday. It's a humanitarian crisis, obviously, in Gaza and obviously a uh, moment of tragedy in Israel. We thought we would offer what insight we can from a broadly economic perspective. So, the first question, Adam, I was going to ask is with Israel explicitly on war footing now, I wonder how long that's economically sustainable, both domestically and internationally?
2: Yeah, I I think for clarity's sake, uh, we need to distinguish um, war from war and make sure that we have our comparisons and analogies properly aligned. Because in no way, not from a position of relative military power or economic effort or existential threat, is Israel's situation that of Ukraine in the current moment. Israel has massive military superiority over Hamas its superiority over Hamas is far greater than Russia's over Ukraine. And of course, after this horrific attack, Israel is grievously wounded. But we really are talking about a 9-11 style situation, not the situation facing Kiev following um, Russia's invasion. I mean, Hamas is a force of a few 10,000 fighters, lightly armed. And if they can mount a rocket barrage of 5,000, A day, it's a huge surprise to everyone because they're, you know, in previous assaults in Israel, they've been able to manage a couple of hundred, maybe 500 a day. Russia can hurl tens of thousands of military grade heavy artillery shells at Ukrainian positions over weeks on end. So we're talking about really quite fundamentally different situations here. The people who face a truly existential threat. Of the type the Ukrainians face are the Palestinians, but unlike the Ukrainians they don't have a hinterland to flee to to get to safety from. The Israeli government is suggesting that they evacuate in light of the devastation that is to come, but of course there's nowhere for them to evacuate to, Right Now this isn't to diminish or to downplay the fears of annihilation that obviously circulate in, and for good reason, is in Israel's historical consciousness, but we really aren't in a situation like in 1973 where you had potent Arab states with major military forces on Israel's borders, Syria right now is a basket case, shambles and Egypt's on the point of bankruptcy. So what we're really talking about here is a gigantic counterinsurgency operation of a very, very bloody kind. Israel talks about war, but it also talks about crime. It talks about barbarity and I think in the end, the type of conflict that we're dealing with here is better understood. And you can understand why they would want to declare war. But what it's better understood as is as a very large-scale urban counterinsurgency operation. And that shouldn't be underestimated. Um, trying to erase, which apparently is the Israeli plan, and entirely destroy the military infrastructure of Hamas, which is dug in in, in a dispersed urban. It's often said that Gaza is the most densely populated place on earth. It's not true. But there are two very major urban centers which are densely populated. Hamas is deeply dug into those and destroying its military and rooting it out will be a hard task even for the Israeli military with 300,000 soldiers mobilized now. It's a grim, grim prospect that we're looking at. But the issue here cannot be really of like scale of support to master the situation Ukraine is in, Ukrainians, unsurprisingly, are receiving tens of billions of dollars and would ideally like $100 billion and could probably use it. Um, Israel receives several billion dollars, so an order of magnitude less, uh, a year in any case. And the US will ramp this up. But in general, I think it's broadly speaking symbolic. Um, if Israel does continue this effort over a period of months, it might run it at an annualized basis, perhaps 5 to 10% of GDP. When it fought in Gaza the last time in 2014, it's estimated it cost Israel a fraction of 1% of GDP because the fighting was largely over in a matter of weeks. This is Israel's choice. Israel is not under sanctions like Russia is, for instance. It can maintain this effort for as long as it needs. The munitions it's asking for from the United States include interceptors for the Iron Dome, which obviously makes sense in terms of Israeli self-defense against barrages of, of Hamas rockets, They're asking for precision-guided munitions, which, frankly, is a mercy because the more precision they have in the strikes they're going to launch in Gaza, the better. But ominously, they're also asking for artillery ammunition, heavy artillery ammunition. And that is not, well, I mean, modern artillery is advanced stuff, but nevertheless, these are brutally destructive military-grade weapons which are about leveling large pieces of an urban landscape. They're combat weapons, not surgical strike assassination tools. And there's a limited stock of 155-millimeter NATO-grade ammunition out there. And bizarrely, earlier this year, some 300,000 shells were moved from Israel to Europe and from there to Ukraine. So there's a limited pool of this ammunition. And America is ramping up its production lines so as to be able to supply this. But really, this is not, you know, for better or worse, as macabre as it is, this is not going to be any kind of bottleneck on the Israeli operations uh, the last time they made a land incursion into Gaza, the way he was bulldozed by about 35,000 rounds of heavy artillery ammunition that were fired into Gaza. Clearly, the Israelis will be able to put their hands on enough to do the job this time around. I think uh, one of the reasons to be cautious about aligning or comparing um, or creating a kind of trade off between the Ukraine, uh, America's support for Ukraine, and and Israel is that, that it, it quite clearly plays into the domestic politics of the United States right now. I mean, immediately as the first uh, military shipments were flown into Israel, the call went up from the U.S. military for Congress to sort itself out, so as to be able to put America in the position to continue aid for Israel. What's clearly in the minds of the Pentagon and the White House and the Democratic administration is the dysfunction in Congress, and I think one of the ways that they, one of the reasons why these two issues will become linked, is that it appears that the Israel question is a way of, as it were, forcing Congress's hand and the, the Ukraine aid will be piggybacked on the back of that. So there's a, the politics of the US plays into this in a really, really, really significant way and, and kind of conflates you know, and creates a sort of strange series of moral equivalences and, as it were, kind of imaginings about the nature of these different, very, very different wars, um, which are, I think are, they're obfuscatory. And uh, it's important to actually understand the the kind of the dynamics here. Okay, so let's shift to the economy of
0: Gaza. Obviously, right now, Gaza is under an all-out siege with no food or water or electricity being allowed to enter the territory. But in a broader context, Gaza has managed some kind of slow growth in recent years, despite Israeli blockades going on for years. And yet, Israel has been described as putting Gaza's economy in a state of de-development, that's according to various scholars. And I was curious, what does de-development mean in that context? What is distinctive about a policy of de-development versus kind of just imposed stagnation?
2: Yeah, it's a really, I mean, gruesome laboratory of the modes of economic policy. It's really a shock, frankly, to come to thinking about the Gaza economy from a more conventional economic policy background because the range of options on the table is just so extreme. The phrase was launched actually in work really from the 1980s and early 90s on the on the Gazan economy because Gaza grows. I mean, you know, economies do grow. Um, the Palestinians, uh, Palestinian community are extraordinary resourceful entrepreneurial people who are highly successful in business all over the world. There's a huge Palestinian diaspora uh, created by the, the displacement of Palestinians from Palestine in the 1940s and after and so Gaza is strategically positioned between Egypt and and Israel and and on the face of it you'd think of it as a cheap labor pool available for the development of various types of low-level manufacturing on Israel's border or within, within Israel's borders and That is the kind of model of development that was actually going on from the late 60s through to the 1980s. But what critical observers noted was that the Israeli authorities tended to disfavor local economic development in favor of basically using the Palestinian population as a cheap labor pool for the Israeli economy. So de-development was an argument that said you could have growth, which Gaza, in fact, did experience from the late 60s onwards because being attached organically to the much richer and more dynamic Israeli economy was good for Gazan growth. But it didn't lead to development because what the Israeli authorities were doing was, in fact, systematically discriminating against the development of local entrepreneurship and organic Gazan growth, if you like. So this is where the term originated as a a way of saying, yes, there's growth, but no, there isn't development. In fact, what there is is systematic efforts to stop and de-develop Gaza. And then things went from bad for worse from there on in, right? Because in December 87, the First Intifada begins, S- the struggles between the Palestinians and the Israelis, you know, move into this uh, persistent guerrilla war, essentially, that continues all the way through then to the decision of the Sharon government to pull out of Gaza in 2005. And then Hamas's takeover in 2006, which then led to an outright blockade. Of Gaza and a progressive deterioration, essentially, of Gaza's opportunities for growth. And again, the Gazans are astonishingly, astonishingly innovative and respond to this situation. The most dramatic period was the so-called tunnel economy. We think now of tunnels as military infrastructure for Hamas or for hiding hostages that Hamas has taken. They originated in the desperate economics of survival in Gaza. And from two thousand and six, seven onwards, when the blockade began in earnest, until Sisi's military regime in in Egypt, which of course was uh, you know overthrew the Muslim Brotherhood administration in 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 Egypt, which had been relatively favourable to Hamas, shut the tunnels down between two hundred and three hundred and fifty entrepreneurially dug private sector tunnels connected Gaza to Egypt to allow large-scale smuggling and subversion of the blockade. And Hamas, in fact, piggybacked on this. They set up a tunnel committee, they licensed entrepreneurs to operate an economy through these tunnels, which allowed Gazans to access crucial raw materials, to export goods out of the Gazan economy, and that was then shut down again. In 2014, by the Israeli, by on the one hand, Sisi's regime, and then on the other hand, by the Israeli incursion in 2014, which sent the Gazan economy into a new nosedive from which, then, following uh, in recent years, it had begun to crawl its way back. So it's a story, if you like, of an economy that is kept on a essentially a kind of brutal system of sort of um, you know, low-level survival, so the Israelis license several 10,000 Gazans to work in Israel. This is a society of 2.25 million people, so several 10,000 people are licensed to work in Israel, whereas presumably in a free labor market, it would be hundreds of thousands of people that were crossing the borders. They sometimes permit companies to export their goods from manufacturing sectors in Gaza. It's essentially a sort of a system that's kept deliberately on life support um, with a view essentially to making it non viable as an independent Hamas run entity, but avoiding total implosion such that the sheer economic misery would drive people to desperation. And I think one way of reading the situation and the way in which a lot of liberal Israeli commentators, notably Haaretzah, is interpreting this is that essentially the Nehanyatu government has got that wrong. And underestimated how far they could, sorry, overestimated how far they could squeeze Gaza before before the violence broke out and and uh, took its revenge on Israel.
0: So I'm curious then about the economics of Hamas itself. I mean, Hamas is obviously you know the ostensible government of Gaza, and I'm curious whether, like other governments, it primarily finances itself through tax revenue and other standard financial channels? Or rather, is this really an example of the economics of being a proxy? I mean, is Iran a kind of central contributor to Hamas's financial existence or more of a marginal contributor to its uh, activities as as an economic backer? And, you know, if it's if if it really is a central contributor to its economic existence would that suggest Tehran is necessarily closely involved in strategy i mean when it comes to proxy relationships Why would you prop up a proxy if you don't control it when it comes to that kind of
2: economic relationship? So this Iranian connection is obviously absolutely crucial to the politics of the current moment and to its likely further development. And there's no no doubt that Iran is a backer of, of Hamas, but it shouldn't be confused with Iran's backing of Hezbollah, for instance, in Lebanon. But Hezbollah is a very powerful, direct and very immediate proxy of Iran. But uh, Hamas has a much more arm's-length relationship. It is, after all, a a fervently Sunni uh, Islamic movement, and Iran is a Shia power, as Hezbollah is as well. Um, So there's an absolutely fundamental disagreement there. U.S. sources claim that Iran's backing for all Islamic militant groups um, in Palestine runs to the tune of about $100 million a year. And Hamas itself has confirmed that it receives about $70 million from Iran. And that's, on the one hand, a non-trivial amount of money. On the other hand, if you are the administration of a urban area of 2.25 million people and are trying to run a paramilitary slash military organization of a couple of 10,000, $70 million doesn't go a very long way. It provides you access to uh, Iran's mid and low-tech weapon arsenal, which is extremely helpful for uh, Hamas. And no doubt, this is hard currency, which really helps, but that isn't that isn't paying the bills. And I don't think anyone seriously claims that it it is. So it gains you sympathy, it gains you influence, it signals where you stand, but But this isn't the kind of money that means that, you know, it's unthinkable that Hamas would have acted independently of Iran. I think rather the contrary is is clearly the case. Tehran has said, you know, we fully solidarize with what Hamas is doing, but we were not involved in the planning and have been taken by surprise by it. And Hamas itself has said, yes, we kept everyone in the dark. We've been working on this for two years. So where was the funding coming from? Well, there are other international backers of Hamas. Uh, in the Gulf, Qatar is one of the is one of the places. It's not, I think, large scale official backing, but there are just sympathisers. Crypto apparently is one of the channels through which some of that money flows. Wall Street Journal reported that Hamas has received about forty one million dollars um, through various types of crypto wallet, and that's quite typical, actually, of some of the Islamic radical groups in the region. But again, this is not really getting you to the kind of scale that we think Hamas operates at. Forbes estimated Hamas's annual budget as being just short of a billion dollars a year. They put it at like 942 million. Hamas has got some business enterprises, uh, which it operates in the Palestinian diaspora in Jordan, in Turkey, and Algeria. Those are rated as having a balance sheet value of about 500 million. So again, balance sheet 500 million, the revenue from that is not going to put you in the billion dollar ballpark. So I think by a process of elim- elimination almost, we arrive at the conclusion that it's essentially the fragile economy of Gaza itself and the taxes that Hamas imposes – on every single choke point in the Gazan economy that are supporting this effort. To a considerable extent, therefore, it's local money circulating locally and is really about a resource reallocation within the and the extremely fragile Gazan economy. One of their advantages, of course, is that they've got very high levels of employ- unemployment, 50% plus. So there's a lot of desperate young people who will take any kind of work for food. And Hamas taxes. All goods that come into Gaza, essentially, uh, and all goods that go out. And that, I think, is the fundamental basis for its operations. I think there's a religious tax as well. But this means that we're putting the military wing of Hamas, presumably its total budget is in the order of three or 400 million perhaps, Panem. Perhaps the share is larger. But that again gives you an idea of the difference in scale between The sort of threat that israel faces from hamas and the sort of threat ukraine faces from russia and we're we're talking you know a, a very modestly budgeted enterprise not even on the scale of as hezbollah's operations which have much more heavy weaponry and um after all have really blunted israeli incursions into lebanon in recent years
0: okay we're gonna take a break right here but we will be back to continue talking about the economics of the war in the Middle East. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball. You know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc., and uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com ones twos today to get ten percent off your first month, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. dot slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Center for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash publicsectorfuture to find all the episodes or... Just search for Public Sector Future wherever you get your podcasts. So to shift to some of the geopolitics and yeah broader geo-economic issues motivating this war, you know, there's been plenty of talk about how the attack by Hamas in Israel may have been motivated by a desire to spoil the potential diplomatic deal that was under negotiation between Israel and Saudi Arabia, brokered by the United States, a deal that pretty clearly Palestine would have had the, you know, short end of the bargain on. And generally, there seems to have been a broader Israeli strategy in recent years that involves peeling off Palestine's ostensible regional allies. There have been other diplomatic accords, including the so-called Abraham Accords that involve Israel forging ties with other Arab states. Yeah, and it seems like the upshot here is that Palestine's plight wouldn't be as strategically significant or internationally salient for that matter, right? I mean, if a tree falls in the forest and it's not, doesn't have allies to amplify it falling, maybe the issue doesn't get as much uh, attention. So does that kind of plan make sense on its own terms when it comes to a weak state like Palestine? I mean, how much do alliances matter for, for survival and for getting attention?
2: Yeah, I think it's really difficult to figure out exactly how far insulating, isolating Palestine is really the driving force in any of these really profound rearrangements that are going on in the Middle East and its geopolitical scene that you're alluding to. I think, you know, one way of reading it is that they're all efforts directed at, as you put it, peeling away Palestine's allies. Or Palestinians' allies. I think the alternative interpretation is simply that Palestinian interests are just getting bulldozed and ignored, and Gazas in particular. And the driving force here is, is on the one hand Nehanyatu's long-standing strategy of normalization with the Arab world, which is supposed to then bolster and drive economic growth such that the Israeli economic offer just becomes irresistible. I think that's one kind of vision. It's a more aggressive nationalist version Of a pacification vision, a kind of end of history vision that was shared by Labour and the Clinton administrations in the 90s, for instance. And Nehonyatou has a more aggressive version, which is that if, if Israel can do big deals with the key powerful Arab states, then really everything else just kind of resolves itself. I think that simultaneously what we're seeing is a series of realignments that actually pointed against the confrontation like this. So there was, as you said, the Saudi-Israel-US deal. There was the Emirates-Israel brokered deal. They were also brokered by the Chinese-Saudi-Iranian realignments. And then even behind the scenes, a kind of low-level effort by the Biden administration to reach detente with Iran and to de-escalate tension there. And you could say, well, there's some sort of Hamas geopolitical mastermind that saw that it was necessary to throw a bomb at this moment. But this kind of operation has been planned for several years and is far more, I think, evidently driven simply by the desperation of Gaza's situation, which is driven in part by the fact that Gaza just simply is no longer equal to the question of. Palestine, the central front in Netanyahu's and the right-wing coalition in Israel's thinking about the Palestine question, is not Gaza at all, because since disengagement from to, in two thousand and five, it's no longer a zone of settlement. So the real issue was really the real issue is really the West Bank, which is where the struggle is being waged for control of territory and in israel's i think in the thinking of the right wing israelis the question is not as it were to outmaneuver the palestinian state the aim of the game is to make the existence of a palestinian state impossible essentially to undermine the two state solution which they see as the real enemy and that's that's the kind of maximalist vision which they were aiming for and this sort of a local act of desperation long term planning on the part of hamas out of gaza I think has emerged as a sort of shock to everyone from from the side. It's clearly a shock to the right wing government in Israel. It appears to be a surprise to the Iranians. It's hugely embarrassing for the Saudis, and God knows how, in due course, the Fatah administration in the West Bank will will respond to it because it puts them also in an incredibly difficult position politically. So, I think I would see it more that way: that this is a the the rearrangement of the world was going on over the heads of Palestine in general, and specifically over the heads of Gaza. Meanwhile, there was in Gaza brewing a explosion of resentment and anger and fury at the insupportable situation there. And to the kind of shock and horror of everyone, that's what's what vented it cr- itself across the border uh, in the south of Israel over the weekend.
0: So finally, I wanted to ask about the effects of this war on the broader international economy. Already, We've seen some effects. The international oil markets have already shifted with oil prices going up since the start of this war. And I'm, first of all, curious why international oil markets would react in that way already. And secondly, how deep could the international economic fallout get, especially if the war continues or even expands to include, as we've talked about, potentially Lebanon, or even, you know, I guess as a more remote possibility but still a theoretical
2: one if it expands to include Iran. Yeah, I mean it's it's haunting the coincidence which which may not entirely be a coincidence that we are speaking at, on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War in 73 and and the OPEC oil boycott that followed from that but that as i was saying earlier is also uh, you know uh, caused to pause and think about how different the situation is and how astonishingly one sided it is in 73 israel was genuinely fighting for its life against a multi-sided massive conventional military onslaught with some of the most high tech weapons available in the world at the time and, you know the wire guided anti tank missiles that humiliated the israeli tankers like it's that was that was truly an existential struggle for israel's survival 50 years on we're in a very very different world from that but oil remains there as a concern and whenever there's trouble whenever there's disruption in the middle east of course people start worrying about the interruption of global oil supplies and the market in the recent months has after all been driving oil prices oil prices high and that's the result of deliberate strategy on the part of the saudis and the russians who decided to dry the oil market out and and uh, let oil prices surge OPEC so far, at least in the form of the Emirati spokespeople for OPEC, have said that they don't engage in politics, we govern by supply and demand, we're not going to consider what each country has done. So they have kind of stood back. But I think the big concern is that some disruption could happen that would further tighten an already tight market and further politicize an already highly politicized market, because obviously Saudi is playing a multi-sided game in which, on the one hand, they negotiate with the Israelis and the Americans for some sort of Middle East peace deal. And on the other hand, they refuse all of the efforts of the Biden administration to keep oil and petrol prices and gas prices down and align themselves essentially with the interests of the Russians whilst opening channels to negotiate with the Chinese. Right? So there's a huge geopolitical game going on here. And um, one of the reasons why we believe the Biden administration is turning a blind eye to the increasingly elaborate, complex and profitable trade between Iran and China in oil, notionally sanctioned oil, is that the more oil that China buys from Iran through those channels, the less pressure China exerts on the oil global oil market that Saudi and Russia are throttling throttling supply into. Right. So there is a multi-sided play going on here in which the Americans are allowing Iran to service China so as to reduce pressure on the overall market which the Saudis and Russians are uncooperatively playing into. So the fear is that something could break in this incredibly fragile configuration and that presumably would be a super aggressive strategy by either the Israelis or the Americans towards Iran at this moment. And then immediately you get into sort of horror scenarios, which will be the Straits of Hormuz, where 17 million barrels a day pass through those straits. And we could be back in kind of 1980s, Iran-Iraq, tanker war kind of scenarios. Even then, oil continued to flow. And the sort of joker in the pack is that because Saudi Arabia and Russia have both deliberately throttled their production, with the Saudis only doing 9 million barrels a day right now, they have huge surplus capacity. If they needed actually to rapidly ramp up production, if oil prices spiked in some disastrous and dangerous way, they would very quickly be able to respond. So right now, I think the smart money is that everyone recognizes that preserving a firewall between this crisis in Gaza and relations with Iran is crucial. And even if, as it were, tensions were to escalate, the Americans have a serious interest in preserving the balance of the oil market, because the last thing Biden wants going into an election year is an out-of-control oil price. And even if it were to come to that, the Saudis would have very large-scale additional capacity available to supply the market. So there's like a three-level security kind of three counterbalancing forces, which I think make most people feel that the oil price will probably Calm down again, but is not going lower, lower anytime soon. I think most people think it's going to hover in this higher level than it's been at uh, for a while. So stay there, which exerts a kind of continuous pressure on the the world world economy. But the geometry of this and the way it's changed from a situation in '73, where you know Riyadh and the Saudis and the Iraqis and would lead, as it were, an Arab pushback on a global scale in support of the anti Israeli front, with huge ramifications, you know, writing themselves literally into world history, to this desperate moment of, you know, this insurgent, ghastly, hyper violent strike into Israel with everyone sort of standing back and just hoping that it doesn't shake anything. I mean, it's really a it's a marker of just how far we've travelled fundamentally, I think, in Middle Eastern politics.
0: Well, we'll see how much further we do end up traveling down this road in the weeks ahead, perhaps months. Obviously, it's a terrible situation. We will keep our eyes on it and hope, hope for the best. But yeah, that is certainly a, a useful laying of the land so far. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tatey, Laura ross Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code twos at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can tweet us. That's at Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week.
1: Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, Professor of Law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant.
0: The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk.
1: The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries, and we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy, and that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift.
0: You want to make it tasteful, you want to make it thoughtful, you thought about the other individual, you thought about what their likes and dislikes are.
1: Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an Everyday Ambassador, coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.